Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Ancient Church, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the first millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkopf, is a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, and he's the author of Epic, A Journey Through Church History. His 20-part epic study is available at his website, www.catholictimeline.com. In part one of this four-part series on the history of the ancient church, Steve introduces us to the age of the mustard seed, when the glorious Church of Christ, which would one day be embraced by emperors, was a little-known sect on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. From the upper room on the day of Pentecost, Steve explains how the early church faced the first heresies and was watered by the blood of the first martyrs. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve refers to is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. We're lucky to have Father Joseph and Father Charles with us here tonight. As many of you know, Father Joseph is the, is the pastor at Holy Transfiguration, the Melkite Greek Catholic Church in McLean. And uh, so he's going to lead us in our prayer. He's going to say a few words about it, and then we'll stand and, and we can uh, sing together. The Western Church sets aside Alleluia for the whole duration of Lent. And the hymn par excellence for Pascha or Easter is Alleluia. In our tradition, we sing Alleluia during Lent more than during the rest of the year, but our hymn for Easter is the one that's going to serve as our opening prayer. So please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. In our tradition, we always sing our prayers. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Indeed, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Glory to his holy third day resurrection. We glorify his resurrection on the third day. Thank you, Father Joseph. I encourage you to get online and and type in um, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, and on Pascha on Easter and to watch the celebration of Easter in Jerusalem. It's a pretty amazing experience. Our speaker tonight, Steve Weinkampf, is a lecturer of church history at Notre Dame Graduate School of Christum College in Alexandria, Virginia. He is the author of study guides on Pope Paul VI encyclical Humanae Vitae and the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on the church Lumen Gentium. He has given numerous presentations and seminars on marriage, family life, human sexuality, church history, and theology. It is my honor to welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Steve Weidenkampf. 
Yes. Thank you, Sabatino. All right, well, that was a great uh, opening prayer and a uh, wonderful welcome. So I'm um, very excited to be here. Usually I travel around the country and give a seminar on church history, a one-day seminar. And so it's kind of nice to actually be able to give a presentation in my backyard, so to speak. I live in Springfield, Virginia, so it's very nice to, uh, to be here locally. And I do have with me tonight, I know they're going to not like that I do this to them, but I brought my wife. She's in the back there, Casey in the turquoise. Everybody say hi to Casey. As well as my son, Maximilian, my eldest son. Maximilian, go ahead and stand up, Max. Everybody can say hi to you. There's Maximilian. This, I think this might actually... Go ahead, thanks, Max. This might actually be the first time that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Maximilian has heard me speak, I think. Isn't it, Max? This is the first time you've been to one of my talks? Yeah, I've taken his sister and, and, uh, and some others before, but not Max. So thanks, Max, for being here tonight. Um, again, thank you all for being here. This is great. You know, this is kind of a challenge. I mean, we have four parts, four weeks, the next four Tuesdays to go through a thousand years of church history. So it's about four hours to cover a thousand years. Uh, normally, I teach a course at the graduate school over two semesters, so over an entire academic year on the 2,000-year history of the church. That's 26 weeks, hour and a half every week. Um, so I don't have that time tonight. So I'm going to talk really fast. Hopefully I can write. Can you write really fast like this? Can you keep up with me? I'm actually not going to talk that fast. But... Uh, we will be going through the, uh, the presentation pretty, pretty quickly. So, and like Sabatino said, what we're going to do is kind of give you an overview, a big picture of what's going on here in the first thousand years in church history. We're going to get into some detail, but not as much as many probably would like. And I know you're all going to have a lot of questions, and that's good. I welcome questions, but I just do ask for the sake of time to kind of hold your questions. I think to the end we'll have time for a question and answer period. So I think that's the regular format. Uh, for these types of presentations. So um, one of the things, like the main point I want to try to, to get across here this, uh, for the next four times we're together that I really want you to soak in and, and, and um, meditate on and think about is, is understanding what history really is and understanding how to look at and how to view and how to study our own Catholic history. And the main point I want you to take away from the time we're together these next four weeks is that the study of our church history, the study of Catholic history, is really the study of our family history. It's the study of our family story. So just as we would go and, and try to learn the story of our ancestors, you know, those who came before us, where they came from, why they perhaps came to the United States, you know, all these different questions we might have. We might take time and delve into our family genealogy to know what's going on in our family history. That's really what we do as Catholics when we study church history, is that we are studying our family. Because those who came before us, saints and sinners alike, if they're members of the Catholic Church, right, there are brothers and sisters in the Lord. There are brothers and sisters, and we live and we exist in this great and wonderful family, the Catholic Church, that the Lord has given to us. And so when we study this topic, that's what we're doing. We're studying the history, our family history, and that makes it much more hopefully important for us. Now, how we study history is also important. And, and I know for many of us, probably the subject of history was maybe one of the most boring subjects we learned in college or graduate school or in high school, right? Others were very excited about history. It really kind of depends on how history was taught to you or how history is taught, whether or not it is exciting or whether it really makes a sense to us in our lives. And so, History is best understood and best presented as a story, as a narrative. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to go through the story of our church. We're going to, go, we're going to learn the story of the great men and women who make up you know, our past, make up our Catholic church, and the events, the actions that they took 
in the first thousand years of the existence of our church. And that will help us inform who we are and know who we are better because, again, we exist in this family. Now, it's important to know history as a story because why? We remember stories, don't we? How did Jesus speak to his disciples, right? To the apostles, he was kind of very direct at times in the scriptures. But at other times when he's speaking to large crowds of people, how does he, what did he normally do? Right, he told parables. And what are parables? Stories, right? I mean, if I was to say just the phrase, the prodigal son, right? How many of you right now, in mental image, you know exactly what that story is, right? I don't have to read it. I don't have to go through the scriptures. To, to, you know the story, right? Because you've heard it, right? It's become a part of our identity. It becomes a part of who we are as Catholics. I would wager even we could go out and we could find 100 people, right? We wouldn't know if they're Catholic or not. We could bring them into the room and, and I'd say the same phrase, the prodigal son. How many do you think would know the story? Out of 100. Most all of them, probably, right? A vast majority of them. Again, why? Because we remember stories. Now, I know you're all good Catholics, and you study the scriptures, so if I say, where in the scriptures will we find the story of the prodigal son, you could say what? All right, Luke, we're getting, yes, Luke, so we have that. Chapter? Luke. Ah, 15. Luke, chapter 15, verse 11 and following is where you find the story of the prodigal son. So, I actually, one time I asked a question to a group, and I said, where would we find the story of the prodigal son? Somebody said, the Bible. <laughs> Good start, yes, accurate. Let's, let's get a little more, a uh, little more, you know, let's neck down a little bit, more specific. Now, why did Jesus speak these parables? Why did he speak in stories? Because, again, we remember stories. Life makes sense when it's understood as a story. Our late Holy Father, John Paul II, in his work, Memory and Identity, said, people recount their history through narrative. People recount their history through narrative. This is telling of stories. This is how we remember who we are. Now, again, most of us probably didn't learn history that way. Most of us learned history with what I like to call as the Calvin method. This is how most of us were taught history throughout school. Now, most of you, when I say the Calvin method, you're probably thinking John Calvin, the 16th century Protestant revolutionary who really kind of terrorized the city of Geneva in Switzerland. But that's not who I'm really referring to. When I say the Calvin method, I'm really referring to the cartoon strip Calvin and Hobbes. And this is why. This is a great strip by Bill Watterson. This is Calvin in school taking a test. He's taking a history test, right? And the teacher asks, the question on this history test is, when did the pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock? And so Calvin then answers that question, 1620. Then the next right underneath that answer, he writes to his teacher, as you can see, I've memorized this utterly useless fact long enough to pass a test question. I now intend to forget it forever. You've taught me nothing except how to cynically manipulate the system. Congratulations. And then the last thing is he says, they say the satisfaction of teaching makes up for the lousy pay. <laughs> so those of us who are teachers, we can, we can kind of, uh, you know, identify with that last, uh, that last uh, strip there. But so what Calvin, what, when I say the Calvin method, that's what I mean, is that for most of us who we went through school, right, maybe even Catholic school, we learned history just kind of memorizing names and dates and events, and then we, we memorized it for a test, and then we wrote the answer down on the test just like Calvin did, and then we, forgot, we, we quickly forgot that information for the rest of our lives, Right? Why? Because it had no bearing to who we are. It made no sense to us. It, it didn't have any, we had no connection with our identity to the information that was given to us. Because I would argue, history was not taught to us as a story. Right? Instead, it was just given to us as this kind of meaningless data that had no, no, no sense for us, made no sense for who we are and how we live. The Catholic historian Hilar Belloc, the great Catholic historian Hilar Belloc, who, who lived in the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th, middle part of the 20th century, he wrote of something called the Catholic conscience of history. And what he means by that, what he meant by that, was that a Catholic should have an intimate knowledge, 
of history, of his story, of our story, through identity. Meaning that we as Catholics, because we're Catholics, because we have that identity, should bring to our lives this understanding of our history, the history of Western civilization, the history of the church of the last two, the Western world of the last 2,000 years. Now, do most of us know that history? No, right? Some do. Some we might know bits and pieces of it, but we really don't know the full story. And I would even argue that many, much of what we know is really actually a myth. Most of, us, most of the stories that have been presented to us, especially in this country, our history has been presented through an English Protestant lens. So most of the things and stories that we've heard about the history of Western civilization or the history of the church have been presented to us through a very specific lens that's not an authentically Catholic understanding of history. All right, and so we've really been filled, I think, with this counter story or false uh, story, really. So our job here in the next four weeks is to kind of learn this authentic story of the first thousand years of, of Catholic Church history. That's what we're going to do, and that's what the orientation and the perspective is going to be for this presentation. Before we get into the specifics of our story, though, let's take a step back, and we need to understand what we mean when we say history and what we understand as the Church, because the Catholic has a, has a very specific understanding of history, and the Catholic obviously has a very under, uh, specific understanding of what the church is. So what's a Catholic understanding of history? A Catholic understanding of history is different than other understandings of history. Ancient Greek and Roman historians saw history as a series of repetitive cycles. They, they saw history as there was really no purpose to history. His, things just happened, and there would there'd be these kind of you know, uh, repetitive cycles of you know, tragedy and drama and these things. Just, would just go on almost ad infinitum. There was no purpose there was no beginning to history necessarily. There was no end to history. There was no major purpose to history. A Catholic does not bring that view and that perspective to history at all. Our view comes really from St. Augustine, who said that history is linear. History is linear. It's punctuated throughout by different climaxes and different events, obviously. But it's linear. History, that means history has a beginning. And history has an end. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. St. Augustine, in his great work, The City of God, which he began writing in 412, talked about the importance of history. And what he says in this work, he talks about the history of these two different cities, the city of man, which is founded on self-love, and the, hist and the, the uh, history of the city of God, which is founded upon love of God and selflessness. And the, what he really said in this, his work, The City of God, is that um, faith, the Catholic faith, is the key to the world's history. If you really want to understand the world, you want to understand why things happen in the world and why history is the way it is and why events have happened in the past, we have to be grounded and rooted in the Catholic faith. And he wrote this at a time when people were criticizing, was, were criticizing the Catholic Church, and Father Saunders will probably get into this in more detail in a couple of weeks, but people were criticizing the Church because an event happened in 410. Alaric, the Goth, came and sacked the city of Rome. And it was, a, it was a huge, shocking event for the time. And people began to blame the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church for this, and Christians in particular. That the Christians had taken Rome away from worshiping the old pagan gods, and the gods were upset, and they allowed Alaric to come into the city and sack it. And so he was writing against that and saying, no, 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 no. It's not, the church isn't to blame. The church is the key to understanding what is going on. And so we have to be rooted in our faith to know that. And so again, he, would, he wrote and he, he taught, as, as we understand as Catholics, as history has a beginning and an end. There's a sense of salvation history. The beginning of history is obviously creation. Right? God creates out of nothing. He creates the world. He creates us. He sustains the world, sustains us and our being. History has a beginning, creation, that creative act, that loving creative act of God. History then has an end. History will come to an end. The history of humanity will end when Jesus comes again. Right? The new heaven and the new earth will, will, 
uh, usher forth upon his second coming. And then there was one central event of all of human history which shapes all of human history. History actually really radiates forwards and backwards from this one central event. And that central event is the incarnation. The God, the God becoming man, true God, you know, the second person in the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ becoming true man, like us in all things but sin. So all history, all true history, really is presented through and understood through this incarnational lens with Christ at the center. And that's, what, that's how we're going to view our, uh, our, our history of the Catholic Church as we go through it here these next four weeks. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this. It says, the church believes that the key, the center, and the purpose of the whole of man's history is to be found in its Lord and Master. And John Paul II put it this way, Christ is the foundation and center of history. Christ is the foundation and center of history. So we need to really hold on to that and know that and keep it in the back of our minds as we progress through our story. So in essence, we could say that history is the story of God at work in the world and the role of men and women he has called to play leading roles in his divine drama. There is a dr drama to history. It is a great story. And what we'll, what we'll study is the actions of these great men and women throughout history being called by God to do wonderful things in the world, to spread his salvific mission throughout the world. So that leads us to an understanding of what is the church. As we're going to study the church. We're going to study the, the, the history of our church over these next four weeks. So what is the church when we say that phrase? Well, Lumen Gentium, that dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council, gives us a great brief definition of what the church is. And this is what the Council Fathers wrote. They said that the church, Christ the one mediator, established and continually sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, as an entity with visible delineation through which he communicates truth and grace to all. Now, kind of a long definition, but let's just take a brief moment and unpack that. This is what the Council Fathers are saying. We know Christ founded our church. He founded a community, established, established and continually sustains that community on earth, his holy church. It's a community that's rooted in what? The theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. It's an entity. It's an organization. It has visible delineation, meaning it has visible structure, a visible organization. We'll see this here in the early part of the church's history as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's an organization that has visible structure and an organization here on the earth. And it's the instrument through which he, Christ, communicates truth and grace to all. So that's the church's mission, to communicate grace and truth to the entire world. It's not her mission it's Christ's mission. It's that, what we call in theology the salvific mission. Christ came to save us, right? To free us from our sins, to restore the relationship that, that human, human, humanity had with God before the fall. He came and restored that relationship. He freed us from our sins. And so when he ascended into heaven, though, he gave his authority and his power to his apostles, founded the church on them and specifically on its head, St. Peter, to then go forth into the world and to communicate that tr truth and grace to all human beings. So that's the, the church's mission, is the salvific mission of Christ. It's not her mission. It's not her own mission. It's Christ's mission, which she continues and carries on in the world. So he sent the Holy Spirit to animate, to guide the church. And the church is somewhat mis mysterious, obviously. There's an invisible part and the visible part to it. Obviously, when we are an invisible element, we could say, and an invisible element. Obviously, when we study church history, we're going to be studying mostly the visible element of the church. We always have to keep in the back of our mind that the church is also comprised of you know, the triumphant souls in heaven, and the suffering souls in purgatory. There is that invisible, so to speak, element of the church. The catechism puts it this way. The church is in history, but at the same time she transcends it. 
It is only with the eyes of faith that one can see her in her visible reality and at the same time in her spiritual reality as bearer of divine life. The other thing we have to keep in mind when we study the, the uh, history of the church is the church is holy, right? Because the Holy Spirit is with the church, animates and guides and guards the church, so the church is holy. But as we know, right, the, the church is made up not only of saints, but also sinners. Anybody a sinner in the room? Go ahead, raise your hand, it's fine. I'm sure Father's here, we can have confession later right now. But we're all, right, we're sinners, we're fallen yet redeemed creatures. And so when we study the history of the church, we will see the actions of men and women, some of which who lived up to their potential, who lived up to their calling from God, who lived up to their vocation in, in a beautiful and wonderful and a holy way, and others who did not. Right? It's, it's just the story of our church, the story of our community, it's the story of our family. One thing that the study of church history should do for us, though, is it should help us to grow deeper in reverence and love for the Holy Spirit. So when we study church history and we go through the story of these great men and women, we will see that you know, there were good people, there were bad people, great saints, great sinners. If not for the Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church would have fell upon itself long, long ago. Instead of a thousand years of church history that we were studying over these next four weeks or 2,000 years in total, maybe the church would have lasted 20 years, 200 years, if it, if it was just a, a human institution. If God was not with the Catholic Church, it would have died out long, long ago. But it's still here, and that's what we're going to study, is we're going to look back and see how is it that we got to where we are today. And that's what we're going to go through over the next uh, four weeks. Now, it's hard to learn the church's history. It really, really is. Uh, it's 2,000 years. There's a lot of information to pack into 2,000 years of church history. Uh, it's in 2,000 years as a whole. There, you know, tons, lots of saints, different rulers, secular rulers that influence church history, saints, sinners, all kinds of people make up this great history of our faith. So how do we study it? Well, some historians have really devised a way, and it's not a new thing, but they've devised a way of studying church history, is breaking it down into time periods. And there are many different ways in which historians have done this over the, over the history of the church. I've developed a study, a way of looking at the church and taking 2,000 years of church history and breaking it up into 12 different time periods. And I've called this study Epic, and as Sabatino said, I have some of my Epic material in the back, and I'll be happy to talk about that a little bit later after the presentation. But here are the 12 time periods that I've taken and broken down into church history. Each of those 12 time periods, I've given a name to it, obviously, and then a color. And the color, the reason for the color is the color is kind of a memory device. It helps us to remember what is going on in that, history, that part of church history, that time period of church history. And each color represents the main theme of what is going on in church history at that time. So again, just to help us remember our story, remember our family history. And so through the next four weeks, we'll actually cover the first four time periods. Um, and then perhaps maybe later on, I can convince Sabatino to, that I can do another four-part series on the remaining uh, time periods. So, but for now, we're going to study the first four periods. In my epic presentation, I go through all 12, and I take 20 weeks with which to do that. And again, I'll give you more information on that in a moment. So let's go ahead and get right into our first time period, the time period that I call the mustard seed. And here's some of the events that we're going to look at um, tonight. And I use the story of the mustard seed, or I, use the, I term this period the mustard seed, and use the color mustard yellow, because this is the time when the church is very small. The church is just starting out. Christ has ascended into heaven. The apostles are kind of waiting for their marching orders. The great drama of Catholic history is about, about to begin. Now, every great story, right, every great fairy tale has, has a certain way it begins. How is that? Once upon a time, right? Now, if you're a Star Wars fan like I am, how does Star Wars begin? Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, not as many you know, Star Wars fans as fairy tale fans. That's okay. But every story has a beginning. Every story starts out you know, from a particular beginning. And our church history, our story, also begins in a particular way. 
we could say that Act 1 of the church's story begins at the great event of Pentecost. The great event when, when the Lord sends the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the Blessed Mother gathered in the upper room, and they are filled with the Spirit. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that after they are filled with the Spirit, that they go out and they begin to, to preach the gospel. They preach the good news. And in particular, we read in Acts how St. Peter gets up and he preaches Christ crucified and Christ risen. And we read that 3,000 people come into the church that day. A 30-fold increase in church membership in one single day. So we see these apostles who used to be, you know, kind of uh, very much afraid and scared and not willing to go out and to even, you know, admit that they know Christ, are now filled with this Holy Spirit, filled with, the, with that grace, and now go forth throughout the world to take this great message, to take the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is risen, and that we can have life and freedom with him for eternity. So after Pentecost, then filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles then go out and they disperse throughout the known world, and even beyond the confines of the known world at the time, preaching and teaching the good news. And of course, the one apostle who, who does a lot for the church and influences the church and influences certain membership of the church and brings in certain members into the church is St. Paul. And St. Paul, as we all know, was a Pharisee originally named Saul. He was a very well-educated man. He knew Greek and Hebrew, was a Roman citizen. He persecuted, as we all know, the early Christians uh, to the point of holding the cloak of those who came to stone St. Stephen. And then on his way to Damascus, he has that great conversion experience. And then over time, he then goes out and, and travels on these three great missionary journeys, where he covers the whole realm of the known Roman Empire. And there are really three effects of Paul's missionary efforts that are very, very important for us and for our story. Three things that, are, that, are, that come about as a result of his ministry. The first is that he spreads the faith throughout the empire. Still small at this point in time, but he begins to spread the faith throughout the known confines of the Roman Empire. Very, very important. The second thing is that wherever he went, he mentored and built up small Christian communities. He built up, he mentored disciples, he had small Christian communities, he left those disciples to, to lead those communities when, when he would then travel someplace else. So he began this kind of, you know, organizational, he began to organize his, his communities. And then the third great effect, obviously, of his missionary journeys is what we are the inheritors of today that we still use and read and meditate on, his writings. Right, they make up the bulk of the New Testament, his epistles. So St. Paul, obviously, a, a very, very important apostle in the early history of the church, one who began the spread of the faith beyond the normal confines of where, when it started within the Jewish community. Gentiles began to be um, you know, brought the faith and brought into the faith as a result of St. Paul's efforts. And so as a result of that, and a result of all his missionary journeys, and the church is growing in membership, especially growing in members who are non-Jews, there's a big question that faces the church here in the very, very beginning of her history. That question is, what do we do with the Gentiles? It's a big question, right? I mean, because the church started out as really, it's really small in Jewish communities. And, you know, St. Paul, even that was his, his uh, way that he missioned to people. That he went to these communities. He first went to the synagogue, preached in the synagogue. And then he took his message to the Gentiles, right, wherever he was. And so these Gentiles begin to convert. And they come in. And the question of the church and those who are Jewish Christians want to know, what do we do with them? You know, they're not circumcised. Do they have to follow the, circum the law of circumcision? Do they have to follow the dietary laws? And this really was a huge question in the early church. And there were two camps that developed on how to answer that question. One camp was with St. Paul that said, you know, look, Christ came, he has fulfilled the law. And so it's unnecessary for Gentile converts to be circumcised. Right? It's not necessary for them to follow all the strictures of the dietary law. 
You know, we ourselves, you know, the Jews couldn't follow it perfectly. Why would we place that burden on them? That's what one camp said. Another camp, led by St. James the Less, who was Bishop of Jerusalem, he argued that no, you know, people should, these Gentiles should become, in essence, Jews to become Christian. That they should be circumcised. They should follow the dietary laws. And so what happens is this great question is settled in a gathering in Jerusalem of the apostles in the year 49. And that's the Council of Jerusalem. And so the, the apostles gather together. They listen to St. Paul and his, he gives a report of his missionary journeys and what he has done and how the Gentiles have come to faith and they're coming into the church. And St. James argues with, with, on his side that they should be circumcised and follow, follow dietary laws. And ultimately, it's the head of the apostles, St. Peter, who resolves the conflict. Right? St. Peter says, look, the, Jews do not, the Gentiles rather do not have to be circumcised. But then he also is a good leader, so he hears the other side. And St. James the Less said, okay, I can agree with that. However, they should at least follow some of the dietary laws. For example, they should not eat meat offered to false gods. Right? They should not eat the animal flesh of strangled animals and that they should not engage in illicit sexual unions, primarily through temple prostitution. And so St. Peter said, sure, all right, yeah, that's fine. We'll compromise that way. That's a good compromise. That's how we're going to solve the problem. That's how we're going to solve this question. And so then the letter is written, and then the letter goes out you know, throughout the church so that people understand and know this is how we are to deal with the Gentiles. And so the first question, the first big question that affects the church is answered in an apostolic way, and then it's answered through the, an exercise of the Petrine ministry an exercise of St. Peter as head of the, the College of, of uh, Apostles answering the question and making a definitive judgment. And so the church then moves on and continues her missionary journey. Now, I mentioned to you other, before, briefly, in, in the beginning of our talk, Hilar Belloc, the great Catholic historian. And Hilar Belloc wrote this work called Europe and the Faith. And in his work, he really asks two questions that are very pertinent for us as we study the early part of the church history. His two questions are, what was the Roman Empire? And what was the Catholic Church in the Roman Empire? Two very, very important questions we have to answer in order to understand what's going on in this period of time. And so the first question, we'll take the first question first. What was the Roman Empire? Now, the, to understand really the history of the church at this time, between the year 33 and 100, and even you know, beyond that really, the first three centuries, four centuries of church history, you really need to know what the Roman Empire was. And Belloc says this, that the history of European civilization is the history of a, of a certain political institution which united and expressed Europe and was governed from Rome. And he said the Roman Empire was a united civilization, the prime characteristic of which was the ex acceptance, absolute and unconditional, of one common mode of life by all those who dwelt within its boundaries. Right, so we had this united civilization in Rome. And this is the faith. The faith is now entering into this civilization. Actually, really, we could say the faith was within the civilization and is now spreading outward throughout the civilization. And it's going to come into contact with that civilization. And that contact with the Roman civilization is going to cause certain things to happen, certain bad things to happen to Christians, as we'll see here in a moment. Now, the interesting thing about the Roman Empire is sometimes many of us have this image of, you know, you have the empire, and you have all these barbarians, these, you know, these uh, kind of toothless, savage, bloodthirsty, hairy German barbarians. It's not really a totally accurate historical picture. And that these barbarians somehow wanted to destroy the empire. Right? And that's kind of the image we get from Hollywood and others. You have these German whores just wanting to come in and just crush all civilization because they're uneducated, they're barbaric, and, well, they're German. And <laughs> that's kind of what they do. Right? I mean, that's, that's how this story has been presented. It's not really true. 
And Belloc puts this really, really succinctly. He says the, the, the true understanding of it is that the, those who were outside the empire wanted to be inside the empire. And really the history of the Germanic peoples and the Roman Empire is a history of the Germanic peoples always butting up against the border of the Roman Empire because they want in to the empire. They want admission into the empire. They want to live in that united civilization because that united civilization is, has security, is at most times peaceful, and is economically prosperous. Right? All of us, even today, we want those three things, right? Safety, security, economic prosperity. The German barbarians, no different, that's what they wanted as well. So Belek says this, he said, they wanted to deal with the empire to enjoy its luxury now and then to raid little portions of its frontier wealth. They never dreamt of conquest. On the other hand, the Roman administrator was concerned with getting barbarians to settle in an orderly manner on the frontier fields so that they could exploit their labor with, co with coaxing them to serve as mercenaries in the Roman armies. And that's true. Towards the end of the Roman Empire, the vast majority of those who made up the, the soldiers in the empire were Germans, were ethnically Germans. They were not Romans at all. So and we'll talk more about that as we go on uh, during the course of our presentations. But so as I mentioned, here's this faith, and the faith is growing up inside this united civilization of the Roman Empire. It comes into contact with, it, with that civilization, and then certain things happen, and that cer certain thing happens. And the certain thing that happens when that contact is reached is persecution. And persecution begins very early on in the history of the church, and it begins in the year 64 under the, the reign of the emperor Nero. Now, on July 18th of the year 64 was the night that started 250 years of government-sanctioned persecution of the Catholic Church. What happened was, as we all mostly know the story, I'm sure, that the Emperor Nero had ordered a portion of the city of Rome to be set on fire because he wanted to remake Rome in his own image. He wanted to build certain you know, buildings and architectural vision for Rome, and he had to destroy part of Rome in order to do that. Now, of course, as he, cerned, as he learned, fire is one of those things that's a little difficult to control especially when you set fire to wooden structures. Uh, so the fire was out of control, and it raged for five or six days. It destroyed a large part of Rome and killed many, many people. And obviously people are upset that this happened, this death, destruction. And so they begin, obviously when people are upset, they look for somebody to be upset with. And the person they looked to be upset with was Nero. Right? So Nero then, as all good political rulers did, decided to blame it on somebody else. Right? He, he got a scapegoat. He blamed the fire on the Christians. Now, Nero's an interesting character that we have to take just a minute and look at here. He ascended the throne in the year 54 at the age of 17, very young, to become emperor. An interesting, curious fact when you study Roman history is that those Roman emperors who came to the throne before the age of 35 all go insane <laughs> on the throne. If, they were, if you come to the throne before the age of 35, you then go insane as a Roman emperor. There's something in the water, maybe, I don't know what happened. But that's what the history shows. Now, it's interesting to think about it in our terms for a moment. In our Constitution, there's an age limit for one to become president. What is that age limit? 35. You ever wonder why our founding fathers set that age limit? Our founding fathers knew their history. And in particular, they knew their Roman history. They didn't want somebody insane to come to... Th now, we might look at our recent you know, American history and think, well, maybe we should set the bar a little higher. <laughs> But they didn't, so we have to live with it. Now, Nero was most definitively a psychopath. He ordered his mother to be killed and was very, a very ferocious man and towards the end of his reign really had some serious psychological problems. He, burned his, or he blamed, as I said, the burning of Rome on the Christians. Now, one of the things that he did was not only did he begin the persecution of Christians in the, Ro in the Roman area uh, or in the area around Rome, but he also outlawed the Christian faith. He had a law, he wrote an edict outlawing the Christian faith. So from the year 64 until the year 312, it will be illegal 
to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. That law will be on the books. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. He also had Christians arrested and executed in the most horrific ways. Now, the Roman historian Tacitus has given us different descriptions of the way in some of the ways in which some of these Christians were executed. And this is what he wrote, Tacitus. He said, The Christians were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs. Or they were, cu- they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. And so in essence, Nero had Christians tied to, to uh, you know, wooden poles and tarred, basically, and then set on fire to serve as human torches, mostly for the parties of the nobility. So it was a spectacle for the nobility. And this is obviously a horrific way to die. Now, interestingly enough, many of the Romans saw this and saw this persecution of Nero. And again, it was, kind of con- it was confined to the area around Rome. This is not empire-wide yet at this point. But it's confined to the area around Rome. And the Romans actually had a different reaction to what Nero thought. They were very sympathetic to the Christians. Tacitus records this. He said, There arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. So they began to know that these Christians are dying because Nero's a psychopath, not because of who, who they are or what they believe. And that's a very important point for us to keep in mind because it will shape how people then view the Christians. How the martyrs go to their death and how the Christians respond to these persecutions will influence the way people see the faith. And isn't that true for our own day and age? Can't we take that, hist- that lesson from history and apply it to our own day and age? How we act as Catholics has a huge impact on how people see the faith and how people see the church. I mean, doesn't it? You know, how we live our own faith lives in public, at our places of work, in our families, influences how everyone we come into contact with understands and views the Catholic faith. And so that's a very, 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 that's a burden. That's a heavy burden, a big burden, a big responsibility. With God's grace, obviously, it's a burden that we, we embrace and we can live with joy. All right? And when we, when we live in sacramental grace and, and we receive the grace through the sacraments to be able to live that kind of life. And it's a great calling. That's part of our baptismal vow. You know, our baptismal promises, rather, is to live that life of a Christian all right, authentically in the world. And obviously our world today is in desperate need of people to live their authentic Christian vocation, isn't it? I think we can all agree with that. So also during this period of, of Nero's persecution... We have the great martyrdom of, of St. Peter as well as St. Paul. Both St. Peter and St. Paul die during these Neronian persecutions. If you want to know what it was like to kind of be a Christian during the time, an early Christian during the time of Nero's persecution, I highly recommend one particular uh, historical novel to read. And it's the, it's the historical novel by Heinrich uh, Senkiewicz called Quo Vadis. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's a historical novel, so it's a work of fiction. But it is very, very, I think, accurate in how it portrays the time period of Nero's persecution. And it's, you know, centered around a love story between a pagan and a Christian, so that's kind of nice. But, you know, it really gives us this nice understanding of, of what was going on and what it was like to be a Christian at that time. Uh, so I encourage you to read if you haven't read it. It's actually very, I mean, I read it during, for Lent, a couple of, a spiritual reading during Lent a couple of years ago, and it was, it was fantastic. It really helped grow an understanding and appreciation for what these early Christians went through. So I encourage you to, to, to read that. There was also a movie made in the 50s uh, by the same name, Cool Vadis. Excellent film. Uh, I encourage you to, to, to get that on Netflix or, or uh, you know, Blockbuster or what have you. Also very good. Uh, back in the, in the golden age of Hollywood, when Hollywood made films that were somewhat historically accurate, but, but definitely you know, a good story and oriented in a positive direction towards the Christian faith. 
Now, obviously, as the faith begins to spread and Gentiles come into the, the faith, and the, you know, the, the faith the Catholic Church is, go, is spreading throughout the empire, we can ask the kind of question, why? Why does the faith spread? Over the next 40 years, right, despite this local Roman persecution under Nero, the faith be, spreads and people join the church. Why is that? Why would people willingly want to join a sect that is, is, looks, that the, the authorities look a little unfavorably to? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. One, is that the faith was, was, was kind of brought together at a time of great peace in the Roman Empire, known as the Pax Romana. So Rome was at peace during this time. And that allowed the faith to spread... Because when a society is peaceful, then people within that society have the time to kind of focus on and look at things that are maybe more eternal. To look at, to look at life that's not just trying to live you know, from day to day. But rather to have a sense of peace and security opens one up to an acceptance of things that are, that are more than, than temporal. Opens up one to, to a greater vision for life. So that was one reason why the faith begins to spread, because the empire is at peace at this time and people could focus on these spiritual matters. The second reason why the faith spreads throughout the empire over the next 40 years here in the early part of the first century is that the, that the empire was united culturally. And it was united culturally in a certain sense. I mean, obviously there were different groups throughout the empire and they had their own culture, but for the most part there was a, a united Roman culture. that You could go anywhere within the, the Roman empire and be at home. Right? Because, for the most part, people spoke one particular language. Pretty much everybody throughout the Roman Empire would know and be able to speak Greek. Right? We have Alexander the Great, actually, to thank for that. So, so the, the cultural unity of the empire was very, very uh, attuned at this period of time. It was kind of a nice you know, seed, a nice garden for the seed of the faith to come into. Now, Latin obviously was the official state language of the Roman Empire, but the common everyday tongue was not Latin, it was Greek. And so people could speak, and then obviously the missionaries, the apostles, Paul, could go around to different communities and throughout the whole empire and be able to communicate with the people and be able to teach the faith and, and to uh, speak it. Uh, also, the third point of why the faith spread is that the faith and the people, rather, in the Roman Empire were people who were oriented towards religion. At this time, in the early part of the first century, there were things called mystery religions. I mean, obviously, the Roman Empire was a polytheistic society. They believed in a multitude of different gods, and there were all kinds of state gods and local gods and little deities that people would worship based on occupation and what have you. But also at this time, there were these mystery religions, and these mystery religions really kind of came out from Egypt and other places in Persia. And these mystery religions had with them rituals that you would be initiated into the mystery religion. To participate in the particular mystery religion, you would go through certain defined rituals that were overseen by priests or priestesses. Right? So people, Gentiles, growing up in the Roman Empire, when they come into contact with the Christian faith, they could then, there were similarities there. I'm not saying the church borrowed these from the mystery religions. I'm just saying that people could, could be comfortable and know, oh, okay, well, here's this religion, this faith that has an organized structure, that it has rituals. There's an initiation process that I go through. So that, again, just you know, kind of presents and, and lays a nice foundation for the faith to grow up in. So this is one of these are the reasons, or one of some of the reasons why the faith begins to spread at this time. Now, as the faith spreads, also we have during this time, you know, the teachings of the apostles. Some of these teachings begin to be written down and carried forth from community to community. And one example we have from early in this period of time, from around the year 80 to 100, is a document that's known as the Didache, or the teaching of the twelve apostles. And really, it was an early manual on Christian living and worship. And the Didache is very interesting. It starts off, the very opening paragraph says this. It says, there are, two ways, uh, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And great is the difference between the two ways. 
And then this manual of Didache goes on to explain the way of life and the way of death. The way of life is the, a life that's lived according to the Ten Commandments. It's a life of Christ. It's a living of the, the sac- of the sacraments, living in the church and the community. The way of death is followed by those who disobey the Ten Commandments. It's a way of murder, a way of adultery, a way of stealing. And even in the Didache, it mentions abortion as an action that is part of the way of death. So even here in the early part of the church's history, we have a document that specifically points to something that's very prevalent, unfortunately, in our society today, the act of abortion, as something that's that's obviously not in keeping with the way of life, not in keeping with the sacredness and dignity of every human person. Also in the decay, we have an early form of the rite of baptism. So we can see how the early Christians actually baptized and how how they viewed baptism. Right? It comes from the scriptures. They baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's prayer, a way of prayer, a way of a life of prayer in the Didache. Especially the Our Father is centrally mentioned as the prayer that all Christians should pray at least three times a day. This is what the early Christians did. And then also there's a discussion on the Eucharist and what the Eucharist is and how the Christians should gather together to celebrate and worship and partake of the real presence of Jesus Christ uh, in the Eucharist. And specifically mentions the Eucharist should be celebrated on Sundays, and only the baptized should be able to participate in receiving the Eucharist. So, you know, some of, sometimes we get challenged as Catholics that many of the things that, that we believe or the way that we worship, uh, you know, in the church today is some kind of later accretion that it wasn't really a part of the early church, that it was something that happened after uh, legalization of the Christian faith in the 4th century, which we'll talk about next week with Constantine. You know, many people challenge this and, and still say those kinds of things today. It's not true. It's not true at all. Most of what we, obviously what we believe and how, most of what we, how we worship was present in the early part of the church's history. And we'll go into more detail on, the, on that as we go along. Now also at this time, as we're moving through our history, there was another persecution, an early persecution, under the emperor Domitian. Now Domitian became emperor in 81, in the year 81. At first he was very peaceful towards Christians, but then he begins to change. Remember how I said if you come to the throne before the age of 35, you go insane? Well, Domitian was one of those emperors who came to the throne before the age of 35. He was the first Roman emperor to title himself Lord and God, meaning he was the first emperor to demand that people see him as a god to speak with him as if he was divine. Now, other Roman emperors had been considered divine, but that was when they, after they had died. They were then considered divine, not while they were alive. He was the first Roman emperor, emperor to say, I'm a god, worship me. And this, obviously, Christians would have a problem with this, as well as Jews and, and some other you know, people, perhaps, in the Roman Empire. Now, in terms of being mentally ill, he was a man who, for fun, had these special tweezers made, where when flies would fly around in his presence, he would grab his tweezers and he'd catch these flies. And then he had a special pointed little needle contraption made, and he would take the needle and he would stab the flies that he had caught, just for fun. He also, towards the end of his reign, he was so paranoid he was going to be overthrown and murdered that he had a special room built and had these these walls built of marble and had the marble polished extremely smoothly so that he could put a chair in the center of the room and he could see anybody coming in and coming you know, towards him from any direction. So that you know, he was always paranoid and looking over his shoulder that someone was going to, to kill him and overthrow him. So it was a man who obviously was a bit unstable. He then begins the persecution by killing off members of his family who were Christians. He ordered the persecution of Christians to be widespread throughout the empire. It was during his time, during his reign, that St. John the Apostle is sent to the island of Patmos during this persecution. Ultimately, St. John the Apostle would die later after this reign in the year 100. Domitian himself was killed 
Um, he wasn't in the polished room when he was killed. But he was killed ultimately by, uh, and replaced with the Roman Emperor Nerva. Now, one last thing we'll talk about before we leave this time period of the mustard seed is this very, very important letter that's written at this period of time in the year 96. And it's written by Pope St. Clement I, and he writes this letter to uh, the Christian community in Corinth. Now, Pope St. Clement was the fourth successor of St. Peter. He actually knew and was taught by St. Peter and Paul. Now, why he wrote a letter to the Christian community in Corinth is because there was an uprising. Basically, the, the Christians in Corinth revolted against their bishop and revolted against their priests and decided that they wanted to determine how they were going to worship and what they were going to believe. And news of this got back to Clement, and he obviously was very concerned at what was going on in Corinth. So he wrote a letter to this community telling them to end their revolt against their priests and their bishop. And the tone, the tone of the letter is very firm, fatherly. It's a very firm and fatherly reprimand to the community. This is what he writes in the letter. He says, Disgraceful, beloved, indeed exceedingly disgraceful and unworthy of your training in Christ is the report that the well-established and ancient church of the Corinthians is thanks to one or two individuals, in revolt against the presbyters. And this report has reached not only us, but also people that differ from us in religion. So he was very concerned about this revolt because it was a concern not only within the Christian community as a whole, but it was also now influencing people outside the Christian community to not join the Christian faith. Because you could say, you could look and say, well, look at this, this community of Corinth. They're not even agreeing with their leaders. They're revolting against their own appointed leaders. So why would I want to join a group that's, that's within, you know, has dissension within its ranks? So he writes to them and tells them to cut it out. And there's really three major things that we learn from St. Clement's letter that's very, very important for us as Catholics. The first that he mentions in this letter he repeatedly is his understanding that the clergy derive their authority from God, not from the people. Clergy derive their authority from God, not from the people. Remember we said Christ obviously establishes the College of Apostles. Peter is at the head. He then you know, gives authority and power to the apostles. The apostles then pass and hand on that authority and power to others through the act of the sacrament of, of ordination, of holy orders. And so it's from the clergy then have this divine authority. It's not an authority from the people. The second point that he, is very important for us that he mentions throughout this letter is, again, this notion of apostolic succession. That, that authority is handed down and has been handed down from the apostles. So the church is not just some kind of human construct and a bunch of people got together to create the church or exist in a community. The church comes from the apostles. And any authentic Christian community traces its roots in, from that, back to that apostolic office, back to the apostles through apostolic secession. Now, the third kind of main point of this letter that's important for us is this notion of the universal primacy of the Bishop of Rome. That's interesting, because St. Clement is writing on an internal church matter of another Christian community, the church in Corinth. Right? But he's writing as the bishop of Rome to this Christian community, really, in a sense, ordering them to put down to stop their revolt. Now, also, at this time when Clement is, is writing, St. John the Apostle is alive. Right? He doesn't die until the year, about the year 100. So it's not John the Apostle who writes to the Corinthian community to stop it is, the, it is the Bishop of Rome, St. Clement. And this is what he writes in his letter. He says, If some, some shall disobey the words which have been spoken by him, meaning Christ, through us, meaning Pope St. Clement I, let them know they will involve themselves in no small transgression and danger. So the point here is that we see in the beginning of the history of the church this understanding of the important role that the Bishop of Rome plays in the church. Now, obviously, that, that role and how it's actually uh, lived out and how it's actually worked out will, will develop over the centuries. 
But we see it here, though, at least very present in the early beginnings of the church. And it's important for us because we sometimes have people who come up to us, you know, Christians, separated brothers and sisters, Protestants, who come up to us and argue about the role of the Pope and say that, you know, there really was no kind of foundation and organizational, you know, no head to the church that Christ intended. Right? When, he, when he spoke in, in Matthew to St. Peter about the keys, it really was just kind of this, this general authority for everyone in the church. You know, we'll have these kinds of different interpretations. And we as Catholics can refute that and say, no, no, that's not really what that passage means, first of all. And second, that's not how it was understood and lived in the early church. St. Clement's letter was actually very well known throughout the early church and was very revered throughout the early church. In some Christian communities, it was revered almost as high as the scriptures. So this gives us a sense of how the early Christians actually understood the role of the Bishop of Rome. So now we come to the end of our time period of the mustard seed. We see that the church has separated itself from, from Judaism. We have Gentile converts coming into the church. We've answered the major question of what to do with these Gentiles. And so this, the church is small as a mustard seed, but it's going to grow and going to become very large and as large as a mustard a tree. You know, to be able to have a large tree with many branches to be able to hold many, many different people. And so we'll move into our, just briefly here, our time period of persecution, our second time period on this, this journey of the story of our Catholic faith. And the time period of persecution runs from the year 100 to the year 312, and I've chosen the color dark red for this because it's in reference to the Church Father Tertullian's quote, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. So during this time of intense Roman persecution, the church will continue to grow, and the church will, will then ultimately convert the empire that is persecuting her. Christ said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So this begins, this, here in this time period, we're looking at state-sponsored persecution. Over 200 years of state-sponsored persecution of the Roman Empire against the Catholic Church. That's almost as long as, of a history as the history of our United States. Let me think about that. The time of our American history, of our experience as a nation, is about as long as the church was actively persecuted by the Roman Empire. Now, sometimes that persecution was intense and was empire-wide, and sometimes it was confined only to small regional areas, and we'll talk about that as we go along through these different uh, persecutions. Now, I mentioned to you before that Belloc had asked two questions, right? What was the Roman Empire and what was the church in the Roman Empire? So now we're going to answer that second question. What was the church? The church was, or what Belloc said was, the church proposed statement instead of hypotheses, affirmed concrete historical facts instead of suggesting myths, and treated its ritual of mysteries as realities instead of symbols. And then he also wrote, too, this is very interesting in contrast, that the Roman society believed man to be sufficient to himself and all belief to be mere opinions. Does that sound familiar? Right? That Roman society believed man to be sufficient to himself and all belief to be mere opinion? Isn't that kind of how, isn't that the society we live in today? Right? That there really is no objective truth. Right? Well, you can believe that. That's fine. That's your belief. But that's not really truth. There is no real objective truth. Truth is whatever we want to make it. Right? That's kind of the same society we live in today. Now, the church and the empire was a distinct and unique organism. It was highly disciplined, highly organized. It had a visible structure with bishops and priests. Christians, the church at this time, was filled with passionate conviction. It held to exact doctrine. And it had central doctrine. The incarnation and the Eucharist in particular. Now, as the church began to grow and as converts came into the faith, there arose among Roman society different pagan authors who were obviously antithetical to the Christian faith. 
and they didn't want to see the Christian faith succeed or grow. And so they began to write tracts and pamphlets against the church and against her teachings. And they began to encourage Romans not to join this church. Now, we don't deal with people writing tracts and pamphlets against the Catholic Church today, do we? Yeah, so no, of course we do, right? So just as it was then, same now, right? It's just different, uh, different authors and what have you. But basically, even some of the same criticisms are still being levied against us. And there are basically five main attacks that the pagan authors would, would levy against the church and against Christians. The first was that they were atheists. They would write and say, you know, those Christians are atheists. You want to have nothing to do with them. That's, we kind of think that's odd, right? I mean, we obviously believe in God. The early Christians believed in God. Why would they consider us atheists? Well, the Romans considered Christians atheists because they did not participate in the traditional imperial religions. They didn't participate in worshiping the state-sponsored God or the local uh, municipal deity. So as a result of that, they assumed that, we had no, that the Christians had no religion whatsoever. They also then said that those who, who were attracted to the Christian faith and those who became Christians all came from the ignorant and poor. They were all ignorant and poor people. And why that's important and why, why that would be important for a Roman is because Roman society was highly stratified. It was highly class-oriented. So if you were a noble, if you were a nobleman, a member of the aristocracy, you, had, you want to have nothing to do with ignorant and poor people. You want to have nothing to do with children, slaves, women, those kind of people. You want to stay completely away from them. So the Roman author said, look, don't, don't join the Christians because you're, you're going to mingle with these ignorant and poor people. And that would, again, you know, prove it's not true, but that would prevent, hopefully their, their thought was that it would prevent people from becoming uh, Christians. The third attack that they levied against Christians was they were, that they were bad citizens. That in essence, Christians were a threat to the empire because they refused to worship the emperor, which in and of itself was an act of treason and also in the Roman mind an act of blasphemy. And they also thought that because of that then, Christians were not interested in the political affairs of the empire. They were not interested in the welfare of society. Again, not true. This, these are all myths, but these are the attacks that they levied against the Christians. And they also said they're bad because they meet in secret. Anybody who meets in secret is you know, not doing something good if you're meeting in secret. Obviously, there's something wrong going on there. Now, the fourth attack they levied was that Christians believed in unreasonable doctrine. And in particular, they targeted the doctrine of the Incarnation. And they really had a hard time dealing with this, these pagan authors. And they believed the Incarnation was nonsense. One pagan author named Celsus wrote this, The assertion that some god or son of God has come down to earth as judge of mankind is most shameful, and no lengthy argument is required to refute it. What is the purpose of such a dissent on the part of God? Was it in order to learn what was going on among men? Does he not know everything? So you can kind of follow the logic. You know, it just seems, it seems illogical to the Romans that God would become one of us. You know, why would he do that? You know, was he just not aware of what was going on down here and had to come down and figure out what was going on? I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous in their minds. They also believed that the resurrection was a lie and the scriptures were just fanciful fairy tales that were written for the ignorant and poor people. Now, the last attack that they levied against Christians was that the Christians were cannibals. And many of us have heard about this you know, attack against Christ early Christians uh, before. Most of us assume that it was associated with the Eucharist, and that's partially true. But really, what the pagan authors wrote was that the Christians were literally cannibals, that they would eat the flesh of other human beings. And what they wrote was that Christians would gather together in secret, and then during the initiation of the neophytes, these, the neophytes would be brought together in front of the whole community, and then brought before the neophytes would be a bag. And in the bag would be an infant, a live infant. The neophytes would know that, though. Then the neophytes would be given a bat, and there are some kind of, uh, not a bat, obviously, but some kind of you know, wooden plank or, or a, a stick. And they would beat the bag until the bag stopped moving. 
then the bag would be opened, they would see that it was a baby they had killed, and then to become a full member of the Christian community, the pagans believed, they would then have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of that baby. So in essence, the Roman pagan authors considered Christian, called Christians, baby killers in, the, in, the, in this part of church history. Now obviously, not true, but this is the myth that they, even the Romans, although they, they lived you know, a very immoral lifestyle, many of them in their society was not necessarily oriented uh, in a proper virtuous direction. Even to them, baby killing was, it was that kind of horrific cannibalism was, was bad. It was not something people you wanted to be associated with. <coughs> So again, these are all just myths that the pagans levied against the Christians in order to, to try to convince people to not join the Christian faith. They weren't successful because the faith continued to grow despite all of these attacks and the persecution. Now, I know I think I'm coming down towards the end of, uh, of my time here. So I think what we'll do is, is uh, we'll take our break here in a moment, and then I'll pick up next week, and we'll answer the question of why did the persecutions happen. All right, so I gave you a little taste of what was going on in some of the early persecutions, as well as um, you know, some of these myths that the pagan authors levied against the church and against Christians as a whole. And then next week we'll answer the question, why the persecutions? And then we'll begin to delve into more specifically some of the 12 major persecutions that happened between the year 100 and 312. And then before we break, I just want to... I'll go through my slides here quickly. A little, I just wanted to mention again, uh, my church history program, Epic, I have a table in the back. My wife is back there. She can answer your questions on it. And again, what I've done is I've taken church history, divided into 12 time periods, giving each a color. And uh, some of the products associated with Epic, uh, one of them is this timeline chart developed. So it has all 12 of the time periods on here for you, front and back, six on the front, six on the back. And what I do is I list you know, most of the major popes, the popes that really had most influence in each of the time periods, there's a timeline section. I've identified the 100 main events and persons of church history that we really need to know if we're going to know our Catholic history and know our family history. And then I have, we, have a different, we have a section on historical figures. I give you a sense of who was the secular ruler at each time in church history and how they affected the church. And then also a list of major important cultural events, politics as well as uh, culture, so we can kind of situate the story of the church and what was going on in the secular world at the time. And then I go through each of those 100 main timeline events in my 20-week program, which I do have available uh, as DVD presentation or CDs as well uh, for sale in the back there. And you can see my wife or talk to me about it, and uh, I'll give you more detail if you'd like. You can also go on our website, which is catholictimeline.com. And I'll have all that material with me over the next four, uh, three weeks. So I think we'll take a brief like five-minute break, and then those who need to leave, go ahead and leave, and then I'll take some questions afterwards. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Question and answer for Steve. We got a hand up in the back from a very dangerous young man. Oh. A friend of mine from Christendom College. But I got to give you some rules first, brother. I got to give you some rules first. And that is that the question, first of all, has to have something to do with the topic. It's got to be one sentence long. If you take a breath in the middle, you got a problem. It's got to have a question mark on the end. Okay, we got a question in the back. My question is, um, could you describe something about the further split between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially as seen by the fall of Jerusalem and the Christian reactions? Yeah, no, that's, that's, I didn't get into that because it's for time. But yeah, you know, the, Jerusalem falls in, in the year 70 AD, and the Roman army comes in and, and, and crushes the city. And 
uh, you know, Jews are then dispersed throughout the uh, the empire. I mean, there was communities, Jewish communities throughout the empire before that, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, the you know, the, there was this this tension, obviously. I mean, very soon in the in the beginning of the church's history between you know Jewish Christians and then the Gentiles, and how that would you know how they would interact and play out with each other. Uh, and, you know, some of that is centered upon some of the controversy with with Saint Peter and Saint Paul, and, and you know some of those things as well. But you know, ultimately. When you you come to you know the Council of Jerusalem, I mean it's it's somewhat, at least one question in particular is settled, and then as you go along, you know, as the faith begins to grow more and more throughout the empire, you have more and more Gentile converts coming into the faith, and so at, over time the Gentiles then uh, overcome in terms of numbers the Jewish Christians, and then the Jewish Christians you know or the Jews then begin to look at the faith in a, in a look at the Christian faith in a different light. And then you have this reaction among the Jewish community too to become more Jewish in terms of separating themselves from, you know, they're answering the question what does it mean to be a Jew not in terms of of uh, you know an internal question of what does that mean, but an external answer to the question saying, well, it, to be a Jew means to be different from this group. And so that begins to develop and even to in terms of scripture and and you know what canon you're going to use, the Septuagint, which the you know the Christian Church used, um, and the Greek version of the Old Testament, or whether you're going to use you know a more a different translation that was uh, non-Greek. So there's this this internal tension that that exists for a time, and then it's it's kind of in a certain sense it's overcome by events because the the population of the church is so oriented in in the Gentile direction um, that then the Gentile influence is really what then carries the church forward. Can you quickly uh, identify the uh, the time period and the tone of the four Gospels and how that relates to the history that's going on with, at the time? So the I'm not sure I understand the question. The, the tone of when when they're written, you know, some they have oh. each of the, the each of them has a slightly different tone yes. and a, a different way of uh, presenting the the gospel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Each. Yeah. I mean, each of the scriptures. You know, the, the scriptural authors um, have a different audience or different you know way in which they're trying to present the gospel stories. You know, I'm not. Scripture is not my focus. Uh, history is so, but you know that that develops over time in in the early part of the church's history. And depending on what scripture scholar you believe in, uh, you know when they were written. Um, I think good scripture scholars would kind of argue that most of those manuscripts were written, you know, before the year 100. Um, some would argue maybe earlier. Some would argue later, but you know, roughly around that time. And so, you know, I mean, in terms of how it influences the early church, I mean, the scriptures were definitely revered throughout the community. You know, the communities knew about the different writings, knew the Gospels, and would read them uh, and, and as part of the liturgy, obviously. But, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of was there, you know, one community that, that gravitated more towards this Gospel and more towards that, that Gospel, I don't think that was necessarily the case. Um, you know, the Gospels, but the four Gospels, main Gospels, were well known. And then it would be later on in the Church's history, you know, really not to the 4th century, where, where a definitive list of, of the, what would comprise the canon was compiled. So uh, that didn't mean that obviously you know, the, the books of, of the Bible and the New Testament weren't, uh, weren't known to the Christian communities. They were. Um, but it wasn't until the 4th century when then a definitive list was actually uh, compiled. So, question about uh, when Peter went to Rome, mm. did all the, the successors of Peter also, were they identified with being in Rome? And is that a time that... Um, at some period of time, the church kind of shifted its focus from Jerusalem being the center to Rome being the center. And yeah. was that kind of more because the bishop of Rome was there and Paul was buried there as a martyr and, and, um, and Peter? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I mean, obviously, Peter and Paul go to Rome. I mean, Peter 
uh, you know, they're, they're martyred in Rome. Uh, you know, the bishops, the, the successor of St. Peter is obviously still the bishop of Rome, was the bishop of Rome at the time. Um, it, you know, and, and as you're right, I mean, the, the focus does kind of shift somewhat from Jerusalem to, to Rome. Although, it's important to note that, you know, in the early part of the church, I mean, up through the first four centuries, the vast majority of Christians were in the east, in the eastern part of the, of the empire. And we'll talk next week, I'll talk about the division of the empire into east and west halves by the emperor Diocletian. Uh, but there's obviously, you know, a huge concentration of Christians in the East, you know, a good, good number in the West, mostly in Italy and Northern Africa and those parts. But, you know, at this time, the vast majority are Eastern Christians, so to speak, or Christians in the East would be a better way of describing it. Uh, and then, you know, yeah, from, from kind of a political perspective, in a certain sense, the focus shifts a little bit more towards Rome, since that was the seat of the empire. Um, and then, interestingly enough, though, once you get to the reign of Constantine and really even to, into the reign of his sons, um, you see the, sh the shift, the political shift, from goes back. It goes from the west back to the east, and you begin to see um, this kind of this tension, um, you know, which which begins, you know, in the early part of the second century, maybe, and it continues on definitely through the uh, up to into the fourth century of this tension between east and western halves of the church. But ultimately, there's a whole long history that could be in four part, eight part series uh, alone on just that relationship. Uh, which will come to a head, you know, in the 11th century, and it still obviously affects the church today, unfortunately. But you'll see the shift back when Constantine comes to the throne, and he actually engages himself in church affairs in a much more uh, direct way than previous emperors did. Previous emperors wanted to kill the church and kill the Christians. Constantine, you know, favors the Christians and then wants to control the church, in essence, is what ends up happening, so... You'll notice also on our on our um, list of upcoming events that we have a two-part series on the Byzantine tradition, which Father Joseph is going to be teaching, that you don't want to miss because of this very fact. It's within this context. I said we're going to be going in and looking at specific points more clearly, and uh, we'll be looking at the Byzantine Catholic tradition because you cannot understand the Catholic Church as the Catholic Church, as universal, unless you understand the East, because from the East that Christianity spread eventually to the West. So I encourage you to, to make sure you attend that series. So St. Paul, when, and he established the church around and uh, trained certain people to be, say, the leaders of it in those particular places. So then he left, and then he was gone for a long time. Mm -hmm. So then the Corinthians, when they rebelled, the people that were leading the church in Corinth, they felt, I guess, they had promoted them up. So where was, what happened between St. Paul who is, who, is the, who is being the priests and the bishops? Who, who made those in that period of time? Right. How, right. How did one become a bishop or how did one become a priest? In, in essence, is that yeah. your question? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the church in, in Corinth, is, I mean, even if you read the letters, the, you know, St. Paul's letters, letters to the Corinthians, I mean, the Christian community in Corinth always had some troubles and problems and issues, right? So um, not shocking that here in the, in the first, you know, 100 years of the faith, 90, in the year 96, there's this issue that St. Clement has to, to write about. Um, but I mean, you know, at the time, obviously these communities were, were you know, there was a bishop that headed these, that was the, in charge of these Christian communities, if you will. And then that bishop, would, over time, you know, there was, in the beginning of the church, you know, the first you know, 50, 75 years, there was, you read different sources and there's, there's somewhat of a, you know, not a clear distinction between necessarily bishops and priests and roles and, and what have you. I mean, it developed somewhat over time. There was always necessarily a, a leader of the community. Uh, and that leader of the community was one who had, you know, received authority from an apostle right? or from someone who had received authority from an apostle. So this whole understanding of apostolic succession was present from the beginning. So the Christian community, I mean, obviously someone from the community would be called apart 
you know, by an apostle or by someone who succeeds an apostle to be a presbyter, to be a priest, and then ultimately to become a bishop when that, that role was, or that uh, see became vacant. Um, so, but it wasn't as if, you know, the people just decided, that's kind of the point. It's, it's not like a collection of just random people got together and said, hey, let's form this community, let's follow this, this man, Jesus' teaching, and, and we're going to appoint somebody as our leader. I mean, there is a clear lineage back to the apostolic time, uh, to an apostle. That's, that's the key point. And so when they revolted, when the Corinthians revolted, in essence, that's what they were doing. I mean, they were rejecting the apostolic authority of the church. And that's why Clement stepped in. Okay, final question. Kind of a follow-up to that is, with the apostolic tradition, you know, uh, they never, they weren't using the term pope, cardinal, bishop, Ooh, yes. or whatnot. Right, right. When did, that, when did those terms start coming into, into play? Yeah, uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, Really, you know, the, this whole notion of pope, I mean, pope is, is just the word, you know, papa. I mean, it's, it means, you know, father. I mean, it means, uh, uh, you know, shepherd. I mean, it's, it's, it's a word, to, it's a nomenclature that was used, I mean, throughout the church, actually, for, for bishops in the early part of the church. And it wasn't, um, it didn't really become, I guess, you know, more focused on the, the bishop of Rome until later on in the church's history. You know, I mean, past the, we're talking the 5th century, 5th, 6th century, is kind of where that became the, the more specific term to mean the Bishop of Rome as opposed to other bishops throughout the, the church. Um, you know, cardinals, I mean, cardinals came about, you know, developed much later in the church's history, not present at this period of time. Uh, and it wouldn't be till later, like in the 11th century, really, that the cardinals are the ones who are chosen to elect the pope. So that special function that they have. I mean, you know, initially you had deacons who were um, in, the, in the community, uh, in the church in Rome, that were relied upon for certain administrative functions and, and other charitable type functions. And then it's kind of seen traditionally from that role of the, the seven deacons in Rome that then you have this, this um, growth of an understanding that the, there could be a, a person who is appointed to be an advisor to the pope whom we give the, the title cardinal. So that was a much later development in the organization and structure of the church. Thank you, Steve. Excellent, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.